What is Pay It Forward? In each episode, we team up two women from the same sector, but at very different stages in their career. They share their biggest issues, nuggets of advice and leadership lessons. This is live mentoring and you're listening in. Today we are joined by two fabulous women in fashion and design. We're joined by Lucinda Chambers, the legendary former fashion director of British Vogue. Lucinda now co-runs sustainable fashion label Colville and online fashion platform Collagerie. She's joined by Cecily Motley, former arts gallery director and co-founder of Motley, a new brand on a mission to democratise jewellery design. Welcome to you both. I'd love to hear how you both got into fashion and design, starting with you, Lucinda. Um, well, I can tell a funny story and I'll make it really short. But um, I was terrible at pretty much everything at school. And then my mother and I needed to earn some money very quickly because we had to sort of move out of our flat. So we both thought we'd go to art college and get a grant. In those days, you didn't have to pay it back, which was amazing. And we made our um, portfolios on the kitchen table. I think pasta shells were involved and knitting wool. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were both pretty hopeless. My mother went on to write 10 books for Thames and Hudson. She did incredibly well at art college, went there at age 58. I spent a year and hated it, but I did start to make jewellery. And um, I sold it to shops like Stark Naked, Liberties, had a stall in Camden Market. And one of the pairs of earrings work their way into a magazine. And I wasn't a magazine buyer. I don't think I had the money or necessarily the interest, actually. But I I liked making this jewelry because it was a way of making money. And Walsh Black & Decker did it in my bedroom, made lots of pairs of earrings and necklaces in Perspex. And I... When they, when they found their way into a magazine, somebody pointed them out to me. I was like, oh my God, there's a process that you can touch something and then they can be photographed. It seemed so exotic to me. It seemed so incredible that, that there was a journey, that those earrings had a journey. And I, and I felt I wanted to be part of that journey. It sounds really strange. So I made that decision. So I left art college and decided to carry on with the jewelry, but to do anything to do with fashion. And then about a year later, I worked in Topshop. I worked for um, a clothing company. I made clothes for Edinburgh Festival thing as wardrobe mistress. Just anything, anything that involved clothes and jewellery. And um, I rung up Vogue just one day in my lunch hour when I was at Topshop. And, they, and I was very lucky. They said, come and, come and have an interview. So you, did you start there as a secretary? Yes. Yes, I did. I started there as secretary to the Petty Cash woman who was called Miss Davis and um, one day she went out for lunch and I lit up a cigarette and she came back in I threw it over the partition and it landed on the assistant editor's desk and I was very fortunate in the fact that she was a smoker and she came round she said is this yours and I said I'll just pack up now I'll just go go home clearly fired and she said I think it's hilarious have you met the editor and I was like no I don't even know what she looks like in my cubbyhole and um, I got an interview with the editor and I was her secretary the next week. And she was the legendary Beatrix Miller and she was incredible. And what do you think's behind the secret of your longevity there? Hmm, I don't know. I think curiosity, I think change. I like, I like, I think people, I like finding new people. I like, I love finding new photographers. I'm still doing that now. And I like working with all sorts of different people. I think. I think it's, I think it's people and curiosity for sure, um, and of course, a completely 
undying passion for design. And on leaving British Vogue, how hard was it to reinvent your career? I didn't look to reinvent it. I wanted to, I probably wanted to do more of the same because I loved my job. Um, I loved doing shoots. Um, I wasn't really looking for anything. I was just sort of having a bit of a think about what the next thing would be. And then my I left Marnie a few, a couple of months before that um, because we had sold it. Marnie sold and there was a new designer and I thought I can't do Marnie again in another reincarnation. We had the most incredible time there, employed the most amazing people. Now I see them all. I always see them. They're fantastic. They're all at Burberry. They're all at Bottega. They're all Celine. They're doing brilliantly. Um, but I thought we can't do it in another incarnation. So Molly and Chris, from who had been at Marnie, who I'd employed at Marnie, said, why don't we start a clothing company? And I was like, fantastic. Yeah, why not? Done it once, do it again. And Cecily, what made you set up Motley? I went into the art world initially. My background's in, in the art world. And I remember uh, looking around in the third year of university and all of my contemporaries had been extremely diligent and done internships in the summer and had all these kind of corporate jobs lined up. And I remember at the time saying, oh, well, I, I don't want to do that. And I remember thinking like, well, if this job lark is about buying and selling things, you might as well buy and sell things that you really, really feel passionately about. Um, and so I thought, right, art world, that's it. I think I also liked the challenge that everyone was like, oh, it's too hard to get into, you'll, you'll never manage. So I was like, challenge. Um, and so I started the kind of almost comedy run of, working at the weekends at Hobbs and then working for free in a tiny gallery in, in Fulham. And then I managed to get an internship at the Saatchi Gallery um, and then uh, managed to get a job in the valuations department at Christie's where I, I even remember in the interview, they were like, how do you motivate yourself in extremely boring tasks? And I remember thinking, not a problem. I'm very good. Uh, I just need some carbohydrates and then I'll be fine. And it was really, I was basically a typist for about two and a half years, but I learned so much there in retrospect that I didn't realize I was learning because I thought I was kind of just doing my job. And from there, um, I was put in touch with Louisa Guinness, who was the founder of Louisa Guinness Gallery, where I moved and then eventually became the director. And it was quite an interesting market. It was completely new. It was the confluence of jewellery, art and design, specialising in artist-made jewellery. So we used to deal in 20th century pieces. These pieces were so cool. Um, and I remember all my friends saying, ah, this stuff is so cool, where can we find it? Um, and the answer was normally, unless you're willing to part with entry level £5,000, um, you're not. And so that was where this idea was cooking of, okay, something in the middle market around really, really, really good design. 
by really good designers that everyone could be part of because I remember being frustrated of dealing to the kind of top, top, top layer of collectors that was so far out of mine and my friend's reach. I was like, there's got to be a way for us to bring this to the market in a way that we can all be part of. And uh, that was where I went to two of the first designers to work with me were, had worked with me at the gallery. I'd sold their pieces. I was like, I have this idea. Uh, you do the design. I'll sort out the manufacture. You don't have to put any money up. Um, and that's where it came from. I started working on that. And my business partner, Alana, I met, uh, we started talking. She actually asked, you know, where can I find really cool, decently priced jewelry. I was like, <laughs> interesting question. And um, that was how it started. She helped me build the business plan and then we joined full time together six months later and then launched maybe six months to, yeah, about six months after that, kind of year after that, year after the point where I was like, this is gonna happen. And what's the toughest challenge you're facing at the moment? The toughest challenge? Um, I think that team is always a really big challenge and making sure that everybody feels valued, listened to and pulling in the same direction when you yourself are doing the jobs of three to four people. So being available enough to be a good manager and whilst sitting down at 6pm to start your day job uh, I think that's that's a big challenge. And I was also thinking just cutting through the noise. There is so much noise now, even if you have the best idea in the world, framing it in a way that can hold people who have such attention deficit. We, everybody has such attention deficit uh, to tell the story that I think is so important, which is that I think we've never been further from the means of production and how things are made and how difficult it is for things to be made. And that story needs to be told. And bringing people in to tell that um, is an interesting challenge, I think. Lucinda, any tips on how to build a great team and cut through the noise? I think you've got to hold out for people that are really sparky and that know that it's a startup and throw their whole energy into it. and. You're just looking for that kind of extra thing. And it's very hard to quantify. So tell me what it is. Well, I think, well, I don't know. I mean, I've employed, you know, over, gosh, my, my career, you know, it's like, it's very long. But, and I've, you know, I've not always had successes, but, but I, but I don't know. It, it can be, I, I remember interviewing somebody who actually now is our right-hand person at uh, Collagerie. And I remember interviewing for an assistant once when I was at Vogue and there was something like 457 applicants. And I wanted, if I could, to interview, you know, I, want, I, want, I wanted to interview 100. I interviewed 50. And then the head of HR said, will you just interview this girl? But she's absolutely not assistant level yet. And she's just started. But I think you'd really like her, Lucinda. She's got, and I said, honestly, I've got like 50 people to interview. I just don't know if I've got the time, Charlotte. And she said, well, just, just give her two, two minutes. She'll come in at drop fat. And she came in and she, yeah, she had the spark. And she went on to work for a digital company. She went on to work for magazines. You know, this is like spool forward 10 years later. And now she's our right-hand person. And, you know, she's very, very much part of collagery. And, you know, another person the other day, we were looking, you know, if somebody had asked me what digital marketing was a year ago, no. 18 months ago, I'd have gone, you what? You, you did you watch? I mean, I wouldn't have had a clue. 
now we're a tech company, we're doing digital, you know, um, I didn't even do an Instagram, you know, I didn't have an Instagram account, nothing. Um, but, you know, we met this girl, she was incredible. She was working for a huge company, fantastic. She gave us like half an hour of her time, spool forward two months. She was leaving that huge company to go for another huge company. That huge company collapsed and she said, I'm actually free, you know, and it's like, yeah, you know what? We can't afford you, we'll just have a sliver of your time. Sliver, and she's given us a sliver, but her sliver is worth, like, I would prefer to have a sliver of her time than eight hours a day of somebody who wasn't as brainiacally fabulous as she is. So I think hire the best people that you can possibly afford, even if you can't afford them. It's a bit like buying a flat for the first time. I remember my mother saying, buy something that make your eyes water. You know, it's gotta make your eyes water. And my God, my eyes did water. And it was 9,000 pounds, but anyway, they watered. But um, you know, you just, you've gotta, you've gotta, you've gotta go for gold. And any tips on um, how you make your brand stand out and, and cut through the noise? I, you know what I think? All through my career, whether it's been at you know, High Street to luxury brands to Vogue to Collagerie to Colville, it's, it's, I, I just do everything from the heart. I know that sounds rather woo-woo, but I think if you do, I don't think I'd do anything in order to get something else. Um, I have that sort of mindset and it's why we started Collagerie. And I think that was a really good premise on which to start a company, a bit like you were saying with yours. Serena and I were having a cup of coffee in my kitchen and we were like, it's so crazy that they're like, where do we go to get our information? And I'm a massive shopper. I mean, I don't buy a lot of stuff, but I love looking. I just look at everything. And, and I was like, where do I, where would I look now? Where do I want to look? I was like, isn't it crazy that there isn't, and Serena's like, that there isn't a digital, and I was like, that there isn't a platform, there isn't something beautiful and colory, you know, full of color and aspirational. And yet the price points could be anything from high street to luxury and niche brands in between. And the discovery would be there and the journey would be fantastic. And everybody would have a good time on it and it wouldn't be an endless scroll and it'd be so curated and I get to pick everything. So we started Collagerie and it's like, and people are loving it. And I think I didn't start it as a sort of like, oh, this is gonna be a really good game-changing type situation, business premise thing. I you did started it because, it because you I wanted, wanted it. it. I wanted it. And, um, and I think everything from, you know, designing at Marnie and Prada and Colville, like you, you, you do things that you would love. If you think of, you know that you're not weird and peculiar and particularly wonderful actually you you are actually pretty normal there aren't a million thousand women like you out there who want exactly the same thing as you they do you know and that's that i think that's the premise of a good idea it's like you were talking about your friends where can i get you know fabulous jewelry and not pay five thousand pounds entry price you know it's like if they want it tons of other people want it and what's the biggest challenge you're facing at the moment hmm Logistics, like just running out today to this podcast and knowing that I had, you know, we've got an event tomorrow night and we've got to do something else. And um, I just dropped my partner off, you know, and then somebody's not feeling well and it's juggling. It's like wearing all those hats and juggling. And I was trotting along here because I knew I was like a tiny bit late. I was two minutes late, but I really hate being late for anything. And I was trotting along, eating my soup and punching a salt coat into something. And I was just thinking, why is my life always like this? And then I was thinking, 
because I blooming enjoy it. Don't think of it as a sort of, you know, hideous challenge. It's like fantastic, but it is, it is just, it's plate spinning. It's plate spinning. And Serena and I always kind of like collapse at the end of a day going, and we've just got so much more to do. Cecily, do you feel like you're constantly spinning plates? Yeah. Yeah. I like watching them smash around me. <laughs> yeah. And I sometimes get to the end of the day as I'm kind of pouring myself a really large glass of wine. I'm like, probably shouldn't. And then I look at my diary and with the blue that shows the meetings, the freaking thing is blue. So I deserve this glass of wine. So other than a large glass of wine, how do you stay sane? I'm just not convinced I do. Um, I think retaining a sense of humour at all times is critical. Uh, even at the greatest moment of laughable stress where, I mean, our, when we launched our first stock order, we got stuck in customs for two weeks. Um, and we had like back orders coming through. Um, one of our suppliers sent something that 100% of the pieces didn't pass QC. I mean, and I think you, at that point you do just have to laugh mm. because there's not much else you can do. How do you stay sane, Lucinda? I'm not entirely sure that I am actually. Because I'm the age that I am, all my children are off my hands. And I think the biggest challenge for me, and when it probably was very important to stay sane, is when you are juggling a family and a career. And that's really, really tough. And I think to be able to compartmentalise and to switch off and that when you're doing something, whatever you're doing, you're fully immersed in it. So when I got home, I remember always, A, never apologising for working really hard, always saying I love my job and always taking them wherever I could with my job. So they've travelled a great deal, which is a really a great privilege. Um, but also, yeah, never apologising for it. But also when you're with your friends, I mean, most of my friends don't really know what I do and never have, is not going on about my business or whatever, and be fully immersed in that moment. So if it's with your kids, you're fully immersed in that moment of making garages with Lego or, you know, I've got three boys, it was endless garages. And, you know, so you're just there, you're present, you're present. And then when I w was at work, which, you know, today, when I'm at work, I don't think about anything else. I really don't. And then when I'm at home with friends, I only think about them. Can and you switch off, Cecily? Yes and no. I have to be really rigid about it. And actually, I wish I could do that more. And I've really tried to do that. And But I have to be quite strict to, in order to be able to do that. Like turn off all the notifications on my phone because it just drags away or um, be just put kind of boundaries in place. I do, honestly, I do find it really difficult uh, and, and I try really hard. And I think that's where kind of friends and being, you know, go to things, be a turner upper is one thing that I have tried to hold on to. Because I think if you let that slip of being flaky or canceling, I, that's one thing I really try and stick on is, you know, be a show upper. I'd love to talk to you both about your style and how that's evolved over the years. Cecily, starting with you. So I really did cut my teeth in that respect in the art world. I learned really 
early that for me in what I was doing, it really matters what you look like and it really matters how you dress. And I really am kind of grateful for that because I found it at the time quite empowering because I was quite young. Um, I was kind of 26, 27, going off to art fairs. Um, we would kind of do the setup and do the first bit and Louisa would come and join, dealing with people mostly um, mostly men, I'd have to say, a lot older than me, doing kind of numbers fast on a stand of like, okay, it's X less 10% plus VAT, what's the deal you're doing? And you have kind of six minutes to do that. And I felt like I, rather than be taken as a kind of pretty girl, it was really important for me to kind of it was my armor and I would really dress myself. Even now when I'm going into a meeting, I think first, what am I gonna wear? It's like the place that I start at before I do something. Um, and I think it really has evolved. And I remember really, really uh, doing some kind of uh, summer work. And I remember that uh, at the at Joy, which still exists actually in Brixton on, on Cold Harbor Lane in their head office, which is my first kind of encounter with with fashion buying. And I bought on holiday in the south of France these, I can still remember, the, really the ugliest shoes I think I've ever seen, the brown loafers, because I thought, well, this is work, so better to be practical and I'm not allowed to wear trainers. And I remember some comment from the woman who run it of like, yeah, we'll sort this out. And I remember thinking, hmm, yeah, maybe I have missed something here. Maybe I'm missing a trick. And then through, um, looking at the people around me. And I, I think also in the art world, the kind of irony was of being pretty badly paid and having to look extremely expensive because if you look like money, people trust you with their money. And I kind of, that was a very steep learning curve. And um, that I think that kind of informed all of the things together that now I just still really like clothes and I do really find them as a really important kind of form of expression. I think I think it's important. Lucinda. Um, I think making a lot of mistakes and trying everything out. And I used to make all my own clothes. So I looked like a freak. Um, <laughs> I was very kind of uh, experiment, you know, very just lots of experiments. I think and I and I completely disagree with people you know when people say oh she was born you know she's so stylish she was born stylish I think you can learn style I really do I think I think style is like a craft that you can really build on you take away you make lots of mistakes you're not afraid to make a fool of yourself I never I guess I never want to look expensive it's probably the opposite to you I don't want to look expensive I don't want to look moneyed I want to look well I think comfort is incredibly underrated I think Nobody can be stylish if they're not comfortable. So, you know, I used to wear sort of like trousers out of furnishing fabrics. My hair was like multicolored. Um, I went through a phase of only wearing purple, like literally top to toe. I can't even look at the color purple now. Um, I mean, freak, you know, I looked like a freak. And then funnily enough, when I remember, I remember one day at Vogue and I think I had to, as the as editor's assistant, I had to bring people up from reception. And I remember there was a kind of minor royal in, in reception, I went, oh, I'll just go and fish her out. And I really was like a bubbles. I was used to wear like tutus. I put pushed the leaves. I remember I had a tutu and I pushed the leaves in the skirt. The leaves would drop off. I remember the doorman saying, your ass is hanging out, love. 
Um, but I, I guess I wasn't afraid to be stupid. I mean, I never thought I looked like the bee's knees. I didn't, I probably looked crazy, but, but I just wanted to try things out. I wanted to try everything out. My mother was incredibly stylish, but also never afraid to look quite outre, quite kind of like she'd wear like plastic hats at sort of school days. And I remember the rainwater collecting and all pouring out. Um, so she was never kind of like worried about making a fool of herself, but she loved clothes. So I think it came from her really. And um, yeah, I love pattern and color. And, and I think I've been lucky enough to work in businesses where I've been able to design things and make up things that I would wear. Throughout your career, what would you say is the biggest leadership lesson you've learned? Communication. I always remember Beatrix Miller, the editor of Vogue, saying, darling, you've got so much furniture in your head, you've got to learn how to commun communicate that. And she was right. I've got it all buzzing around and ideas and visualizations and thing. And it's how you communicate that, whether you're sitting across from an investor, whether you're sitting across from a creative, whether you're sitting across from a model, you know, saying, I want you to behave like a recently divorced, isolated recluse, but you happen to be wearing a Max Mara coat because it's a coat story. But you are this, you know, you want, to, you want everybody to take that journey with you. And I think if you can communicate your ideas, then you get people to do things with you that they might be afraid to do otherwise if you can communicate in a really passionate, fabulous, direct, uplifting sort of way. Cecily. I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that everybody can get on board with it you're saying with what you're saying if they feel heard, if they feel that what they've wanted to tell you has been heard and that you've all decided on balance that they've been heard and what you're going to go with. And I think that is a big lesson. I also think sometimes uh, I personally have the propensity to kind of exist in a bubble and don't really always immediately understand the impact that I have around me. And I think that's a really interesting one of like mapping really closely the impact that you have on other people because it then helps the communication piece, I think. Talking about impact, what are you both doing to lift and support other women and pay it forward, Cecily? Uh, well, there's the practical things and there's the conceptual thing. And it's interesting hearing you talk about clothes and confidence versus curiosity. I think a huge piece across particularly younger women is confidence. I think mostly women underestimate what they're capable of. I think they undervalue themselves. And I think that's why it's tied into all of these conversations about negotiating salaries, et cetera. It's because if you don't feel your own worth, it's very difficult to go into a meeting and say, pay me what I am worth because you don't believe it. And I think there's a really special place in hell for people who crush other people's confidence because there's ways to disagree um, without doing that. And then the practical stuff of uh, any women who want to start businesses, I am always, always go for the coffee. What can we do? How can we help? And I think that is something that is much more um, American than it is British. The first question, you've got to mean it. When you offer, you need to mean it and you need to do it. But how can I help is often the first question over there. Um, when I was 
kind of working there in the art world that I was always surprised. And now I really believe in it. And I think if we all did that more of how can I help and then actually did it, it's really powerful. It's a really powerful tool. Lucinda, what are you doing to help other women? Well, um, we're very fortunate enough, I think, you uh, to support, um, I think we support about 16 villages in Colombia um, making Colville's Colombian bags. And that was somebody we met on a beach um, who was selling, I always wear a Colombian bag because I love them. And they're beautiful, handiwork, really, really fantastic. And so we've actually just done a photo shoot there with pictures of each woman with their bag that they made. Um, and they're fantastic. And so that's something that we will, we feel very strongly about continuing that. So it isn't just that season. We did it last season, we'll continue it. We're con going to continue it the whole time. We'll just ask them if they could change the colors. They actually don't, they can't make a bag unless they're happy. That's what they said to us. Mm. And they can't, they won't change the pattern, which is fantastic. Their patterns are beautiful. So we just ask them to choose different colors. And then the other day, I don't know, a few months ago, I was sitting next to a wonderful woman, she was an NGO, and she supports a lot of women's groups in Dhaka. And I said, what do you do? And she said, well, they make mugs. She said, I was an NGO, and then I realized that all this workmanship was, you know, they weren't making product that was really relevant to be sold. So I said, can I have a look at what you do? And I was like, my God, you can totally make like mugs for Colville. Would they want to do that? So now there's, they sent us pictures of them making mugs and they've just landed in Liberties and they're the most joyous, uplifting things you've ever seen. They're so beautiful. And um, any story like that, that we can do business with and we can help and we can continue, you know, that we can really make a relationship with, um, we're, we're always on the, on the lookout for that. You know, I've always had men bosses right at the top who absolutely saw the value in the workforce that they had and really cherished us and thought, you know, let us get on with what we were really good at. So I haven't really, in my experience, you know, come across that crushing thing. I've always been very lucky in that sense. Um, but I think, I think just hearing, you know, keeping your ears open to hearing women's stories and thinking how you can help them and empower them and do business. I mean, when we got the pictures in of the women making, it's the Iway tribe, you know, making these bags, it's just fantastic. And one of those bags keeps one village going for a month in food. So be curious, know your worth, set out your stall and never apologise for working hard. Thanks for listening and thanks Lucinda and Cecily. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Pay It Forward, brought to you from Madeira at Treehouse London. If you loved it, make sure you subscribe and please rate and review us to spread the word and pay it forward. For any links and key takeaways, check out our session notes.